welcome everyone to the second roundtable of the Think Critical podcast. Um, today we have uh, Ian Stevens, uh, Dylan Meisner, and uh, as she go as she's known to me, Sarah Michelag. Although I'm told that is not her real name. We'll leave it a mystery. <laughs> Just Google me, and you'll find my real name. <laughs> That's presumptuous of you, Sarah. You're the most active LinkedIn user there is. Um, so uh, today we're probably going to be discussing, um, you know, and uh, Dylan and Ian are big foreign policy nerds. I know uh, Biden's or uh, Biden's uh, foreign policy, you know, piss picks um, the implications from the uh, election results. Uh, now that we've given like a couple weeks for postmortem takes, they'll come out. Most of the postmortem takes are really bad. Um as we've seen on the internet, and the third uh, topic is, uh, and this is more my style, is the the, the whether we're going to have a, a flattened K-shaped recovery or just a n- normal K-shaped recovery, because uh, we're not going to have a V-shaped recovery. I can tell you that from this, uh, you know, this crisis come April when the vaccines finally arrive. So uh, I guess my my first like uh, my first question for all of you is that like, do you think uh, do you think uh, Biden's foreign policy choices are at all similar to Obama or his his foreign policy direction is going to be at all similar to Obama's direction or do you think it's going to be something we really haven't seen before or at least seen recently? I think at least myself I think it'll be more in the Obama Clinton like direction of liberal internationalism than Trump's foreign policy, but. There are different challenges that America has to face now than we did in 2008. So I think Biden's team, Biden seems obviously a lot different than Obama's foreign policy team, but I think there are going to be some similar strands here of multilateralism. But I also think Biden's going to take a lot tougher of a stance on China than Obama ever did. Now, do you think do you think this uh this this tougher chance on a uh, stance on China is going to come via like uh, working of international bodies? Do you think it's going to be a, a unilateral stance? I well, this is actually one of the things I was reading from Sullivan and from the article he published. It makes it seem like his view is kind of in between. It was an article about um, how China is approaching like their rise to superpower status. And what he essentially said is there's two roads they can take. They can take the um, dominating Asia-Pacific route, like, militarily, or they can take the, um, like, maintaining influence or gaining influence rather in international institutions as a separate path to, like, superpower status. And what Sullivan said was that um, China will probably... Like work through international institutions and work to co-opt like the international consensus in their favor before they do any um, military action in like Taiwan or in the South China Sea or in East Asia. So I think at least when it comes to the U.S. direction, the U.S. will strengthen our alliances in Asia Pacific specifically with countries like Vietnam and like the Philippines and hopefully Indonesia that are more threatened by China's advances in the South China Sea. But I also think we're going to do a lot of consensus building. And I think his foreign policy team, that's like a lot of what they've spoken on is building back 
American leadership and global institutions. So I think we'll take both approaches, but I think it'll be more focused on restoring American leadership around the world before we can do anything unilaterally. Or even then, I don't think it'll ever be like unilateral American action against China. Dylan, uh, what's your take on this? Do you agree? Um, I mostly agree with Ian's take. Um, I think it's. I think the the personnel is looking like it's going to be a lot like the Obama administration, um, but they they're in a chance. They're they're in a situation where they can they they stand to improve upon the mistakes that were made during the Obama administration. Um, Blinken has, for example, talked about the mistake to not intervene in Syria, specifically in 2013, 2014, after Ghouta and similar chemical weapons attacks by the Assad regime. So I think they're definitely going to learn from a lot of the mistakes from the Obama administration, but definitely keep building in that sort of liberal internationalist direction, which um, I agree is mostly the right way to um, to confront China, because fundamentally what China um, thrives upon is vacuums left by the United States. Um and when we abandon international institutions like Trump did with the World Health Organization or when we threaten um, to cut off our I mean, to, to, we, we threaten to cut off our, na- our obligations to NATO, as Trump did. Um, I think all of those cast doubt upon the traditional liberal order that the United States has been at the forefront of since 1948. And <clears throat> that serves to harm our interests. And China knows that they can uh, step up where we step back. There was this one story pretty early on in the pandemic about how China was um, distributing PPE uh, equipment and um, sort of all over the globe in different countries that like the United States should have been the ones like helping out. Like they were giving PPE to Ukraine, which is like, that's supposed to be, those are supposed to be our guys. Um, And I think sort of America abandoning its role as sort of the foremost leader um, has certainly helped China to step up in different ways. And adding on to that, um, China definitely has made international institutions and global governance a focus of their foreign policy. There's like a Xi Jinping speech from, I think it was 2017, not exactly sure, but he was talking about how there needs to be a um, Chinese like path forward for global governance and that they want to like serve as the model for the um, like future of how like our human societies operate so i think that america definitely needs to work through institutions to combat that that's like obvious yeah i agree I think that um, if China's play is going to be to try and hijack inter- international institutions that, frankly, the United States created and birthed and have kept going all these years, it needs to be our job to not uh, take our ball and go home, as it were, and leave the international institutions, but to fight for our values in them and say, no, China, this is our territory. This isn't yours. And I think that's one of the things, too, where people like Josh Hawley, who talk tough on China, really fail to like put those tough words into any coherent action. And that in America first, foreign policy cannot possibly confront the challenges America is going to face throughout the 21st century because – America first and America first foreign policy, like, sorry, does not recognize or rather refuses to believe that the um, world order is globalized and there's no going back from it now.
I thought it was gonna be impossible to find a senator I hated more than Rand Paul, and yet Josh Hawley when he got elected, it that guy. He, not only is his rhetoric, like, just, like, in terms of, like, the, the logic which he perceives the way America is placed in the world, the way our economic system is, is, um, you know, just, you know, it's downright wrong. It's like a, like a few, like, like an isolationist, um, or aggressive sort of mean. But then he goes and he's basically a nozzle, uh, where he, he writes, like, shit about, like, the, um, like, the, the global elite controlling America, or, which is, you know, always a term which I love hearing as a Jewish person, uh, or, uh, <laughs> or, you know, you hear about him, like, where he's like, ah, yeah, Section 230, you know, is the worst thing ever. And it's like, 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 at this point, I don't even think he's a, he considers, a, he considers himself to be a capitalist, or he's like, you know, freaking out about Amazon having him sort of market share. Um, so he's not even like, he's not even what you, yet, you know, this is the way the Republican Party is gone, so, um, now, getting back to your point on uh, on institutions, um, I think the if you look at uh, the RECP, which China just signed with a bunch of the other nations in the in the region, um, we need even more than uh, I think um, fighting in our in our international institutions. We need to we need to reinvigorate our trade institutions in the region because I think at the end of the day, uh, it's economic conflicts so is going to be underlying the whole situation in in Asia. So. Uh, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't rejoin the TPP, or um, technically TPP has reverted to a second version of the, um, according to the treaty. Um, but if we don't rejoin the TPP, if we don't um, start um, uh, negotiating further uh, trade deals with countries in Africa and, and countries in in other parts of Southeast Asia that aren't, um, or just economic aid to Africa, which we actually cut. Um, then, then we're not going to be we're not going to be able to um, to counter China at the end of the day because even if we even if we have you know the implied international you know institutional upper hand if they have more trade than us then I think is game over in that region and we yeah, so we, we, we need to rejoin yeah. TPP uh, and, and yeah the, the Belt and Road Initiative is the single greatest power grab China's ever done and we've done nothing to counter that. Absolutely nothing. Like, it, it, like Nigeria is going to be an economic powerhouse the size of France. I think a projection is about twenty years, um, it, by some estimates. And we have we have no we have, we don't have so little involvement in that country. And it's just that's just one of many growing African countries. It's one of the more particularly big ones. But yeah, I've wrote pretty extensively on how the U.S. should approach like economic policy in Asia Pacific to counter China and one of the big um, barriers to the US establishing like a like an anti-China block in the like Asia Pacific region is that countries are completely economically reliant on China and China has access to a lot of their sensitive technologies as well so while they are fearful of um, Chinese military expansion in the region there's a graphic I saw the other day that says like the vast majority of countries there are fearful of Chinese military expansion but they won't like enter into like a dialogue with the United States or take action because they fear like reprisals from China like economic reprisals so the US has to kind of create an economic alternative to China in order to like 
put this um, anti-China bloc together in Asia-Pacific. And TPP was a big part of it. I'm personally a little less confident that the U.S. will be able to rejoin TPP because there were a few concessions in it. I don't remember the specifics, but we negotiated pretty hard for a few concessions that I think are going to be pretty difficult for the United States to get if we try to renegotiate and re-enter TPP. But I do think we should make an effort to do that, obviously. Um, A lot of the new frontier for Biden is going to be taking his old advisors who sort of had a feel for the old front. And moving forward, China's become the new superpower. The U.S.'s presence on a global stage has changed significantly since World War II. We don't have the same dominance we have. The Asian economy has redeveloped significantly. And it's all about just finding our place in each of these States and mm-hmm. continuing to maintain a global superpower. Yeah, as uh, as K- as Kagan would uh, say, um, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the jungle has grown back significantly uh, from you know our, the peak of the post-war order. Um, and uh, I mean, it, one of the, the only things I'm kind of concerned about with Biden's foreign policy team is that they're all good and experienced picks, but the, the one of the main things is that. I think the more experience someone get, maybe the more that they might be still stuck in the view that 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 things are still relatively the same. But I don't think we're in the same type of politics as we as we were even like five years ago. It's entirely changed. So like the Sullivan pick so much is because he's pretty young and he's definitely like a new voice in the foreign policy community. He's been involved with it for a little bit now, but he's definitely a lot younger than his peers. He's 43. Somewhere around that age. Yeah. Yeah. I like, and I also like that, that because he's young, but he's certainly not of the sort of Ben Rhodes school. Um, <laughs> Sort of like you can sort of track a senior administration member and sort of the people they um, sort of cultivate under them when they serve in a White House or in government. And so you can see sort of who Ben Rhodes's people are, um, who is my arch nemesis when it comes to foreign policy. And it's pretty clear that Sullivan is not a Rhodes guy, um, which I like Rhodes is a much bigger fan of the Iran deal than I am. Um, I'm sure we have all sorts of different differences on different stuff, but I think he's fundamentally a break from sort of the Ben Rhodesian philosophy of foreign policy and whatever breaks from that within the democratic party is good for me. If I remember correctly, though, I think Sullivan was one of the lead negotiators on the Iran deal. I know he was one of the three guys sent to Oman to negotiate the like initial provisional deal provisional deal before they went to like Geneva, I believe, to negotiate the actual deal. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> my my impression of, of Sullivan is that he's a bit of a nerd. Uh, <laughs> like even more so than other like foreign policy guys when I read the stuff I read from uh, in foreign affairs. Um, is it this, yeah, he def, he definitely does um have a have a really kind of like a like an analytical take um and I think he I think he's definitely uh like in terms of his I think his view of history I think he's a little more you know original a little bit less um like just kind of going with uh, some, like any sort of career trend uh, than other people I've read. I think it's going to be interesting to see how he approaches Iran and how the Biden administration approaches Iran, because they're definitely going to revert 
to the Obama administration's policies in a lot of ways in that regard, but I want to see if they're a bit more hawkish than the Obama administration was. And from what I've seen of Blinken, it seems like we'll be like slightly, slightly more hawkish on it. Not even hawkish, I don't think that's the correct word, but just take a, a little bit more of a hard line than Obama did. Well, I think that I don't think it can get any worse than um, than whatever Trump's uh, quote unquote foreign policy was. I don't think he had a, a policy per se. He just kind of did things, and they're maybe marginally related. Like like because like you know if, you, if his his Iran policy was like leave them alone, kill Soleimani, yell at them on Twitter, and then I think. I think he did a lot of good things when it came to Iran at the very end of his administration with the peace deals. I think getting the Gulf states and Israel to reconcile is really big when it comes to confronting Iran because obviously both like the Gulf states and Israel view Iran as their primary security like threat. But because the Gulf states don't like Israel, they could never like unify those efforts. So I think that was a really good move from the Trump administration. And I, I don't know how much credit you can give Donald Trump. I don't think you can give him much credit for those deals. But I think yeah. it was good work from his administration. Yeah, I think so, too. I think what we see a lot from the Trump administration is that when he leaves it to the officials, um, it's quite good. right? You Like when Avi Berkowitz handles Middle East peace, uh, we got some really great outcomes, um, like you said, on the sort of Arab-Israeli relations front. Um, but then when you get like Trump freewheeling and like North Korea or whatever, um, then you get disastrous outcomes with like the legitimization of Kim Jong-un um, and the and pulling um, military drills and joint exercises from South Korea. Like all of these things that are awful for American interests in the region. But like sort of when you just tell Trump to leave it to the professionals, it actually didn't turn out to be that bad in the case of the Middle East. <laughs> and... I am really interested in seeing how Biden approaches the Middle East because I think they're going to be more hawkish on things like Syria, but I don't know. I just don't know how much different we're going to be from the Obama administration. Like, I know Blinken is obviously very anti-Assad, and that's good, but I don't know how much everyone else in his administration will be on that front. I think it'll be interesting to see, by the way, the Secretary of Defense pick, because I think that'll clear up a lot of mysteries when mm-hmm. it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to put money on it being uh, Flournoy. Yeah, um, I like the yeah. money on that, too. I mean, it, it's just, uh, like, I, honestly, at the end of the day, like, if, if, if you're like, if you're wondering, like, why that, why that just seems to be the obvious pick, because... And I know this kind of kind of stupid, but I know he's trying to diversify uh, his positions. Have we ever had a female sec def? I don't think we no, have. We have not. Um, so this this I mean it, it seems like the like we already have Yellen and I mean Yellen I think in Florida any sort of different levels of like fame in their fields. Um, like mm-hmm. like I think like if, like if you would if you had asked me like five years ago, well, actually I probably wouldn't have known this five years ago. But if you asked someone five years ago, who do you think would have been Treasury Secretary in twenty twenty under a Democratic president, you probably you probably could have predicted Yellen. But I don't know if uh, like I don't think you anybody really would have seen Flor and I being floated if we didn't really know like Biden's new approach yeah. to his picks. Yeah, she's Flor and I to me seems like 
a career bureaucrat who's going to do a good job in the Department of Defense if she is picked. But yeah, I agree that she doesn't have nearly as much name recognition as Yellen. Obviously. Yellen was a great pick, by the way. Yeah, I yeah. was kind of surprised by that. Yeah, the, the one hope of Yellen is that she, I mean, she's super experienced. My one hope is that she doesn't give up on full employment again because I think that was a mistake. Uh, it, um, but I mean, like, like the, the, the priority I think for 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 Yellen at Treasury and for Powell, um, and I, and there's only so much. I mean, there's only so much Powell can do until Yellen's in because Mnuchin is locking up funds all left and right. Um, is going to be to uh, is going to be to get more money into the hands of individuals, um, not only just to increase liquidity. I think I think um, monetary policy. I think it's run it's it's core in terms of like maximum effectiveness. Like there's only so much more you can do with maximum uh, with, with uh, monetary policy with 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 um with getting increasing liquidity available to banks before you realize that people just don't have money in their own hands. There's only so many ways you can get that into their hands. So we're going to have to have some sort of phys- fiscal policy, which is going to be very difficult to have um, with Mnuchin in power. Uh, but it's going to be Yellen's priority. It's going to be, um, it's going to be, it's going to be having to just put as much money into people's hands. Well, not as much money, but put money into people's hands. And then, um, once we have the vaccine distribution, uh, try and get us back to a full employment as fast as possible. I don't think the economy is going to overheat at all. I just, I, I, I think risk of overheating an economy is sort of overstated um i mean i just because it, it it makes more sense in a more closed or traditional economy but we don't have that anymore i don't think it makes sense now to, to worry about it i'm very excited or not excited rapper but interested in seeing how powell does things once yellen's in at the treasury if he changes anything up at all so um in terms of uh, other aspects to the recovery, um, like, are, are we sure that, um, that 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 the vaccine distribution plan, which Biden has, um, is actually like is 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 logistically possible? Because um, one of the things which I, in my little quips of it, is that is do we have enough capacity in terms of raw material distribution materials to to achieve what he wants to achieve? Uh, if he only gets into power in February, um, then I just because because I can't I can't imagine that the Trump administration and even Biden's transition team, as good as it might be, uh, leaving like just like the keys in the car and let it, leaving it all running for him to go, you know, drive towards that date of um, vaccine distribution, uh, which he was rejected in spring of 2021. I just I don't I don't see that being achievable. Isn't there a shortage in the glass vials or the sand that's needed to make the glass vials? I don't remember. I remember reading that somewhere, but that's one of the big like, challenges to vaccine distribution. Well, the second one is um, if we, we have – so of our free floated vaccines, one of them the, – one of the biggest company needs a special cooling technique. Mm-hmm. One of the, the, the smallest the starter. one, right? Yeah the, the, yeah, the Pfizer one needs cooling technique, which means that – you have to you have to then think about well um you know we can we can we can take this is really seems fantastic this vaccine from Moderna or BioNTech uh forget this I think that's the name for it right um if we can and that be it's a good vaccine but we don't know if the if the company itself has this traditional capacity to manufacture as much as we wanted to um which means that uh you'd have to take a risk on that or we get whatever this like British one from Oxford but um it's less effective yeah it's it's less effective and yeah. it's from it's British so it's inferior in just moral quality. Um, 
but you know, um, we're gonna like like I, I just I, that, I don't know if the Trump administration and, and I think to 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 manufacture the cooling at a large scale, the cooling um, is something that's, that would take a while. And I don't, I don't see the Trump, uh, the Trump administration levying any sort of capacity in that direction. So it'd have to be up to, I mean, hopefully the free market delivers and delivers, you know, the vaccine preparation. Um, but I just, I think the distribution target in the United States, of course, the United States is federal government. We're always going to run into some, we're always going to run in some sort of stupid problem. Um, it always happens. I just, I'm really skeptical of that day. And I think every, every day that goes by, even with, um, with, even with good monetary and fiscal policy, we're still going to end up with a huge real shock. Uh, and I, and I, and I don't know if the Biden administration is, has the ability to pass what it needs to pass to, to, to kick up real growth again to the point where it's, we're not, we're not, we're not feeling this five years later in a huge way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a little bit less concerned about distribution because um, I think someone floated the idea earlier using the military to do it. Um, yeah. I think that would be good. Um, and like, that's just what I think. And I hope the Biden administration is. Uh, imagine uh, how the Q world, QAnon, Too bad. Trumpers are going to react to the military distributing the vaccine. Too bad. That's an image in my head. Oh, yeah. that's going to be a To which my answer is, too bad. They can, yeah, they sucks can deal them. I feel like I we know. need to start like confiscating refrigerated trucks um, just to see if we can distribute <laughs> the vaccine. I like, mean, it's between the military or Bill Gates, so microchip from the government or microchip from Microsoft billionaire. Like, pick your poison, I guess. I'll take my risk on the market, please. <laughs> yeah. What was it? What do you guys think of John Delaney's idea? I thought it sounded a too good to be true or rather like one of those ideas that sounds good on paper but you'll run into a ton of issues when you actually do it i think whatever i think if you can have a policy that gets it out to more people um that's a good policy and if that means we gotta spend a little bit of extra money then fine i mean i'll take fifteen hundred dollars to take that vaccine yeah i don't complain I think it's a it's a it's a brilliant plan because remember the number, the number one uh, economic lesson is uh, incentives are good, right? We want it, we, intentions are worse than incentives, and you know, I think I think the nice thing about it is that it, it, it's a generous incentive, incentive which most which many people need right now is the money uh, and the vaccine, so it's a double incentive, and it also it, it helps as well as the um, the um, the concerns of like libertarian minded people are like it's coercion to make and take a vaccine. So it it just gets it gets people to take more vaccine. It, it, it's a double incentive, and it gets people the money they need. My one complaint would be, uh, I don't think it's the only stimulus we need. We need to bring back the super doll so that the the super UI we had six hundred dollars a week that was a fantastic program and ended way too early. Uh, so I I would bring that back as well. But I I mean if if we're gonna do if 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 we can figure out how to get vaccine stimulus plan you know straight from the head of uh, our Lord and Savior John Delaney to the you know to the American people. And if we're talking about um, when we're talking about stimulus, I think if the Biden administration is going to do another lockdown, there should be some type of PPP done again. Because I was reading a paper about it, and it was one of the more effective um, things the government's done during relief. It obviously wasn't ideal. I think the ideal would be like a revenue replacement program. That's too expensive. <laughs> so I think we should 
try to do another round of PPP if we do a lockdown. Not sure if that would pass well, through it, the Senate. Yeah, even better than PPP is, is, is the super doll. It's just, um, like, because at the end of the day, PPP, uh, there was like, a, there was a lot of people who couldn't receive it because of what companies they worked at or because of long term unemployment. Because remember, there's still people who are affected by structural unemployment who are going to be affected by this crisis too. So, what Super Dole was, it, it was, it was, it was not means tested as much, which is nice. Um, and it got to a lot more people. Uh, and then it, it was also, it was ridiculously generous. But I do, I mean, what's kind of, what's kind of interesting about the way the economy is now is that you have this really huge, um, uh, shock to people's ability to work in person. Mm-hmm. But so many products are manufactured either overseas or by automation now that you don't necessarily have to have a huge slowdown in commerce. We're not having we're having supply shocks in certain areas. We're not having supply shocks everywhere, which is really nice. Um, so 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 people still have the ability to spend money on things. Almost not almost as much, but like people are still putting away more money, but it's because they're not eating out. But people are still buying products off Amazon. There's still you know obviously there's food products going to people's houses. Um, you know, people are people aren't really buying as many cars, but they're you know they're still buying like you know power tools and household items. Uh, I think our, our last topic was election postmortem. Uh, Sarah, could you take the lead on this? Oh yeah. <sighs> well, now that we can all breathe, while Trump continues to believe he won the election and everything <laughs> is rigged. Um. Yeah. Biden won, as this is the 300 millionth time we have to declare that. Most of the swing states have certified their votes, and you combine that with all of the safe blue state states who already have unofficial votes declaring that Biden was a victor. Pretty much, Biden's declared. The GSA signed off on transition papers so that he can start getting the presidential daily brief. Any other security measures needed to be taken, and... On top of that, the inauguration podium is being built right outside Trump's bedroom. So, yeah, we're getting ready for a new transition and a lot of big, big fun changes. The fun part is the district level where states like New York are still trying to figure out what the hell is going on. New York really messed up their um, counting. Like... Are they still counting? I'm not certain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh my god. I thought it was a function yeah. of mail-in votes, though, because we—I know—I mean, every person I know who voted voted by mail. Like, like even even Republicans, everybody in my area voted. But I, then again, I do live in Westchester, which is uh, Soros Clinton capital of the world. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it came down to all the mail-in ballots. So the big example would be New York 22, where. Uh, I forgot who was running in it because that's where my mind's at. It's, it's Brindisi is uh, in in Tally, I think, are the two candidates. Tally is Republican, Brindisi is a Democrat. Yep. Yep. So Brindisi had taken on a safe lead, but the issue was before certification, the county or several counties had reported that they couldn't keep track or validate certain mail-in ballots. So it screwed up the counting and caused issues with certification so that now the New York courts have to take a look at it. All the counties just have to report their counting again. And it's a whole mess where they just want to certify the election so that someone can take that congressional district seat. Mm-hmm. So eventually the election will end. The issue is safe blue states. They'll take more time on all the other results. And unfortunately, with 
an election where people didn't know what to expect and a lot of equipment wasn't where it was needed. Um, yeah, we're having issues down the ballot. Yeah, I think vote by mail was just like a nightmare in that regard because people weren't really prepared for that many people to vote by mail. I don't think the infrastructure for it was like set up for that many people to vote by mail. And I think it's the government did a good job trying their best to make it work. Yeah, absolutely. It's like nine states did automatic vote by mail this year, which I think was an increase from either four or five states in prior elections. (laughs) So that and then 34 states were allowing everyone to get a mail-in ballot, but you could also vote in person. So the combination of early votes, election day votes, and then vote by mail just created a more complicated process where Mm -hmm. a lack of machinery and equipment since all of this was decided maybe three, four months ago made it significantly more complicated because elections offices aren't going to be able to get all the equipment they need to efficiently and successfully process ballots to be able to do that in time. Although, um, I think with, with voting by mail, it, like a, a good degree of the reason why it was really slow is the deliberate obstruction by the Republican Party and by the mm-hmm. Trump administration. Yeah, thank you. Like, uh, like, like, if Pennsylvania did not need to take that long, it took that long because of the legislature there, the Republican controlled legislature, uh, uh, passed a law requiring them to only start voting on election, I mean, uh, counting on election day, I believe. Um, and in a postmaster general, uh, we're still, we're still going to have to take, uh, take a look into what DeJoy did, but... He defined um, a federal court yeah, order. Yeah. He defined yeah. a federal... Yeah, and, and, and as far as we know, there's there was 300,000 lost ballots at some point, which... And I don't even know if any of them... All of them have been rectified, but... There, this is... And you know what? It's kind of interesting. You know why we have Louis DeJoy on the Postmaster board? It's because of Bernie Sanders, because he just didn't show up to a vote, and that's why the entirety of the Postmaster General Board is Trump appoint, you know, Trump administration appointees. It's all because of oh, thanks, Mr. Bernie. Bernard. He, he misses the worst votes. He missed the fucking Patriot Act vote. I don't the one where they, they were going to extend the Patriot Act to like a bunch of different digital things. Yeah, he just didn't show up. We lost by one vote. Yeah. Okay, that's one strategy to evade a potentially controversial vote yeah obviously uh post you know post office renaming is very important though it's the most important issue to this nation (laughs) yeah of course yeah it's like destroying the post office absolutely perfectly fine but renaming a post office can't miss that vote uh in terms of um like uh demographic shifts we saw this election or or voter shifts what's everybody's uh read because my my little like pet theory is that um we're going to see a more permanent shift in college-educated voters to the Democratic Party, and then the lower class. We didn't see a lower class shift, but an overall lower class shift. We saw a shift in in certain demographics amongst the lower class that traditionally vote Democrat. They went slightly less Democrat this time. I think that's like the main my main outtake. I, I think what we're going to see of those is it, it's going to it's going to trend entirely upon. Um, the culture, how, how if the GOP is able to pursue its culture war more, and if in 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 whether how lockdowns in in the economy goes, because I think a lot of those votes ended up just being votes about either the the pre-COVID Trump economy or about dissatisfaction to lockdowns or amongst the white working class, uh, cultural resentment I think is still a huge factor, uh, especially with this year, you know, in uh, the events of the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's everybody's take though? I think. 
the um, suburbs are going to go back to being the big battleground. I think in yeah. 2018, they went against Trump just because Trump is Trump. But I think this cycle, the Republicans, and this is pretty like widely known now, that like the Republicans managed to tie moderate suburban Democrats to like the um, radical leftist faction of a party. And I think that really hurt the Democrats in the suburbs. And I think like in the future, um, I don't necessarily think that that's going to be the main thing that makes the suburbs a battleground. I think the suburbs are going to be a battleground because Trump is no longer in charge of a Republican Party. And I think the faces of a party are going to be a lot nicer than Donald Trump and a lot more appealing to suburban voters. So I think those will be the battleground. But yeah, I agree that among certain working class demographics, you're going to see like a lot more of a shift towards the Republican Party in like the near future. And you already kind of saw it in 2020. Um, although, I mean, I think with um, with the whole tying the progressives to the, to the moderates, I, I would agree. Um I, I mean, I, I don't, the solution, and I hate saying this, but there has to be a, an internal party, party policing. Which is why I didn't want Pelosi to, to win speaker, because Pelosi mm-hmm. in 2019 is very pleased with her performance, because, uh, she, she, she tried to police, um, the progressive side of things. Then she kind of stopped doing that this year, uh, for whatever reason, I can't tell you why. Um, I, I, I think Bad there flash, has, California. Uh, that's, that could, that, yeah. I, I don't know why you'd be afraid of Shahid Batar, though, because that yeah. guy... Yeah. <laughs> he was on RT one time, I believe. Because... Of course he was. Of oh, course yeah. he was. He was rapping, wasn't he? Oh, my God. He was some rap about the Patriot Act, yeah. God damn it. Oh, I love U.S. politics. Uh, okay, uh, at least we aren't like a weird, like, fur world country where it's like, there's no pol- political issue. They're just going to throw shoes at each other. That's kind of the entire debate. Uh, I would take that over <laughs> uh, second rate failed Congress people going on RT to make rap about um, <laughs> the, the Patriot Act. I bet a RT reporter, though. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be good. I, actually, I bet I bet Delaney, had Delaney been the nominee for Democrats, he probably would have choke slammed Trump on stage. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely Fetterman would have. Uh, Fetterman yeah. twenty twenty four. We'll see where things go in twenty twenty two. The midterms are going to be an interesting one to look towards. I think the midterms are going to be brutal for the Democrats. Honestly, I think you're going to continue to see the suburbs like return to the median, but I think redistricting is what's going to be really bad yeah, because it's going to kill like, us. Like the purple yeah. states voted Republican in their state legislatures and yep. we're going to do some pretty brutal gerrymanders in like Texas and Georgia. Yeah. The one thing to look at is how many states have implemented independent or bipartisan commissions for redistricting versus what their legislators do. And if the commission has to be approved by the legislator for what maps they drew. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I know at least New Jersey and I believe one or two other states have passed referendum to extend the deadline for redistricting. So Jersey's districts are going to stay the same until 2023. But we have a Democratic majority, so it won't necessarily matter. We just might get more blue members of Congress. 
Um, I, th- I think um, when it comes down to like 2022, like and I, and I, I, going back to your original point about the progressive moderate split, um, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to see more disciplining towards the, the squad, and I hate calling them out, but I, th- I think we're gonna have to or see more disciplining towards them. I don't want to I don't want to say kick them out of the party. Although I, I'd love to see Tlaib and Omar gone. I absolutely yeah, despise. But I mean, and AOC is so much better, but at least AOC like. I don't know. At least she. At least she. You know. You know she she played ball for the team. She, she played ball for the team. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So like, 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 like AOC. AOC will like not take stupid stands on every issue where Tlaib and Omar literally will. Yeah. Um. Uh. Presley, on the other hand, I'm pleased with Presley. I like Presley's presence in Congress. Um. Uh. But uh. But I mean, I don't want to say kick him out of the party, but. There has to be a there has to be a way to disassociate them. So I think an an, an internal uh, uh, separation for them in the caucus or a censorship me- uh, measure would probably do uh, do nicely, um, especially with the Labs, uh horrendous takes in the Middle East, um, which could I, I could easily warrant a censorship measure. <sighs> with, um, midterms, yeah. I I, I I I'm excited to see what Mike Madigan does to uh, Illinois, where he's probably going to make it an an eighteen two state. Uh, the yeah. most brutal man, gerrymander in the entire world. Yeah. That gerrymander is crazy. I, what, what? I have a map save. There's like one district in Illinois. Let me pull it up if I still have it yeah. saved. It's, it's basically spaghetti in, in Chicago. It's like it, every I love district. gerrymandering. Yeah. It so has much. to say, like, you know what? Like, I, I love Dan Crenshaw's district. Oh, yeah. District. yeah. I mean, look at oh, Dan yeah. Crenshaw's eye patch oh, district. <laughs> The 15th district, like, stretches from, like, the Illinois-Kentucky border all the way to, like, oh my god, that's a huge district. All the way to, like, I don't know how, like, Ford Ford County, which is, like, not too far from Chicago from what it looks like, but I'm not well acquainted with Illinois. I've got all these maps of gerrymanders saved. They're funny to look at. I mean, um, think about, uh, about uh, and kind of police with Chicago being a gerrymandered city as it is, because you know I, I'm not a partisan Democrat, but I am a Democrat um, because I am from New York, where our Republican Party is is just it's not even bad, it's just really strange. Republican politics in our states are really strange. It's really bad in my town, um, but I, I, I like. I don't want to say if the, if the, if, the, if, the, if the if the Republicans are going to do it, then the Democrats probably have to do it. And then that, I think by putting chips on the table from both sides and saying, "Well, look, we're going to escalate," that that probably would incentivize some sort of uh, bipartisan way to um to just establish anti gerrymandering requirements. I think a federal anti gerrymandering law would be good for America, but don't know how soon that'll happen. I think yeah, it'll take the Republicans. I think it'll. T- I think what will need to happen for that is that the Republicans will need to lose the state legislature in a state like Texas or Georgia or somewhere like that. And like the Democrats draw a brutal gerrymander. And I think that'll be what gets Republicans to like agree on anti-gerrymandering measures at the federal level. Yeah. My my sort of the take that I want to to sort of diversify the conversation here is I think there's a lot of really interesting um, 2022 races are going to come on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, we see Rubio is going to be up, um, and so is Ron Johnson um, in Wisconsin. Um, I would love nothing more than to 
see a very strong center right primary on Ron Johnson just because he's been so awful yeah. um, on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Like, I would love nothing more than to see, like, a neoconservative resurgence in um, Wisconsin. That would be awesome. But I think that's going to be interesting. I think there's going to be a lot of money thrown into Florida. It'll be interesting to see Absolutely. who the Democrats put up. Um, but I think the Senate is definitely going to be probably one of the f- more fun races to watch in 2022. Mm-hmm. And uh, P- Pat Toomey is going to be gone, right? Yeah, he's so. retiring, isn't he? Uh, Pat's, Richard Pat's Burr's retiring it. in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, I think the big one in 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 terms of Pennsylvania, and it's just the outcome is I think it's 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 all turnout in 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 Philadelphia, right? That's why we lost in 2016. Uh, and I mean I don't I don't I, I guess the solution will have to be like a lot more like uh, a lot more usage of gritty propaganda. Um, on the you know I, I feel like the the entire like it, I, when I went to I have a cousin who lives in Philadelphia. When I went to Philadelphia, they really like gritty there. It's like a it's a weird obsession of him. I, mean, I don't it's not weird because he's awesome, but. I, it's gonna. We're gonna have to require, you know, a gritty injunction. But yeah, there was a study back in 2017, which basically looked at canvassing, advertising, and other means of electoral communications. And basically, the conclusion was that the effects have a net zero. So what that means for future communications, future campaigning, is one. As much as persuasion works, it's got to come out early and it's got to come out strong. So building that trust immediately and making sure that whichever the candidates being propped up are propped up as soon as primary season hits and maybe the first few months of the general election cycle before switching gears immediately into get out the vote mode, which is where advertising communications and all that jazz has a lot more effect. So even though they do say getting out the vote might not benefit Democrats as much as we thought it did. It benefits both parties. And the question is who gets more voters because GOTV gets more trust and therefore more voters as long as there's a name attached to the campaign. And yeah, once you go from there, that's usually where chances go. So it's just a matter of enfranchising voters and hoping they still trust you afterward. And I think just in terms of the health of democracy, it's always going to be a good thing if more people are voting. Yeah. Uh, you know, even if they're not voting for the people we want them to, or like, you know, we, as in like, you know, I, <laughs> but just, you know, at the end of the day, representation, and this election is kind of like kind of particularly interesting because like if I have a preference between two candidates, but both candidates like are not going to like get rid of democracy, uh, then, you know, I don't like, I don't say I don't care, but like, it's a little bit late. It's a little bit more of like, yeah, let the people decide. But like, yeah, I guess if one, you know, candidate, like I think Trump really was threatening to get rid of democracy, then that's a whole different issue. But I mean, if you're familiar with uh, Rachel Bytecover, she is the, um, the worst, uh, election modeler to ever exist. Uh, even worse than right equal politics somehow, yeah. which should not be possible. Uh, but her her little thesis was there's only turnout differences. There is no such thing as a swing voter. Uh, and I mean, I or think there is a swing voter, data. but it's a large thing. Like I think everybody's minds are made up before this election, and it just was about yeah. getting Serbia to go to the polls. Yeah, that's why we saw so much early voting turnout because most people. You didn't really need the debates, except for the very few undecided. And once, like, the second or third week of October hit, it's really not about persuasion at all. It's about getting out the vote, because, quite frankly, up until the final week of the election, October 27th to November 3rd, 
at that point, if you hadn't voted or you weren't planning on voting on election day, you probably weren't going to be voting in the first place. So a lot of it really was people made up their minds. There weren't as many swing voters this year compared to other election cycles. Split ticket, on the other hand, though. Yeah. Thought there was more than enough. I don't think we're going to see split tickets in the runoff in Georgia, though. I just don't. I don't. I, don't. See, I, don't yeah, no. I can't imagine somebody like, hi, I hate Kelly Loeffler, but I, I'm a huge fan of David Perdue. I'm, or I hate, I, I, I hate David Perdue. I hate everything he stands for. But, you know, Kelly Loeffler, she's a fantastic representative of my state. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, some it's... people. There's some. Not, not enough to be significant. No, I don't think it swings the election at all. Yeah, no. Yeah. There always will be, like, no matter what, it's just a part of reality. But the actual impact of those split voters, they're going to be as slim as, I don't know, but twig. It seems like in Georgia, the Republicans, I think, I think the Republican Senate is waiting to, like, say for certain that they think Biden's a winner because they want Trump to support Loeffler and Purdue in Georgia. And if they recognize that Biden is a winner, he won't be as likely to do that. So I think that's the big reason Republicans in the Senate aren't like acknowledging Biden's win yet. And I think that's very harmful to our democracy, but I think that's what we're doing. I think it's a bad strategy at that, though, because Mm -hmm. especially with regards to Georgia, um, because what we saw was that Biden Biden outperformed both the Democratic senators and both the Republican senators, conversely, outperformed Donald Trump. So it's pretty clear there that Georgia Republicans weren't necessarily voting for Donald Trump. They were voting – they were much more enthused about the senators than they were about Trump himself. So sort of angering the Trump base and presuming that that is going to have some sort of outsized impact on Loeffler and Purdue's um, electoral chances, I think is just a bad take. I think it's pretty clear that those two were – I mean a lot of Georgia Republicans were fairly happy to ticket split. So it's not like dissing Donald Trump or whatever is going to hurt – uh, Loeffler and Purdue that much, even if that's what you perceive it to be. <laughs> yeah, I think Senate Republicans need to like recognize reality first of all. I think that's the big thing they've got to do. But I think if they want to win Georgia, they've really got to tie Ossoff to Warnock and then like hammer Warnock's like perceived radicalism. I mean, he did have Castro in his church one time, so I don't know. I'm not going to speak on Warnock's beliefs, but I think that's the best path for Senate Republicans to win those races. Yeah, but I I don't know. So I'm... I think someone said earlier that there was not going to be ticket splitting. I'm going to be a little contrarian here and say I think that there might be. Um, I think the negative ads that um, Luffler is going to run against Warnock is they're going to have an outsized impact in in sort of the Georgia suburbs that um, swung pretty heavily against Trump to Biden. And so I think what we could see in those Georgia suburbs is a bit of ticket splitting where Ossoff is sort of this nice, moderate, affable fellow who's basically just like every hill turn you've ever seen and just a puppy dog that you couldn't not vote for. Um, And then, but then conversely on the other side, I think there's going to be a lot of urban turnout for Warnock and I can't really see too many urban voters um, 
voting not for Ossoff, but yes for Warnock. So I don't. I think I think Ossoff is going to benefit from the urban turnout for Warnock, but I don't think um, Warnock is going to benefit from the suburban enthusiasm to the extent it exists uh, for Ossoff. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. just a nice guy. Like he really is. <laughs> and like the Republican Jewish Coalition, I think is the name of the org. Like they tried to run like a nasty headline about Ossoff. They like ch- tried to choose like a bad picture of him looking mean. It was obviously <laughs> that that's what they were trying to do, but they just couldn't do it because he's just such a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, Ossoff is one of the quite literally. Yeah, like Ossoff is one of those people. Um, I mean, I got the Dark Web Award at work because I've managed to find as much opposition research on every single candidate I've ever researched in my life. Ossoff is one of those candidates you want running because the amount of opposition you can find on him is slim to none. Versus Warnock, where, like, they can campaign together. Ossoff will definitely help Warnock in more suburban and rural areas of Georgia. But the impact of it, we'll find out on voting day. And, yeah, so that's a big question versus Warnock. In the urban areas, he'll probably be safe. They trended very, very blue. They helped carry Georgia for Biden. But will they help carry the Senate? That's up for grabs. I actually kind of agree with Dylan's point about, like, Asif Luffler voters, because despite, like, all of... That's so weird that they're going to exist, but you know they do. Despite, like, all of Luffler's, like, rhetoric, she really is a moderate. Like, she paints herself as, like, being some pro-Trump firebrand, but, like, if you look at everything she's done, she's pretty moderate. And I think... Like, I think for, like, the electorate, that'll be hard to see, but I think educated suburban voters might be, like, a lot more, like, open to her because she's, like, more moderate than, obviously, Warnock. But I don't know. I kind of, like, she's not my favorite, but I don't necessarily dislike her. I mean, it's, at the end of the day, there's two, there's there's three reasons why you want Warnock to beat um to beat Loeffler. One, and I I know you might think that um that that uh, Loeffler is more moderate than Warnock. I really think Warnock's a moderating issue, influence in the Democratic Party, and I I think Loeffler has some some isolationist takes that I don't like. Like, like at the end of the day, the the, key, the biggest issues Warnock's a moderate on on healthcare, on the economy, and on foreign policy. Um, and number two is. I do not see the Republican Party getting its act together for a stimulus package that we need, as big of one as we need. Uh, and, and, and that's the most pressing concern. And then three, Loeffler has a, a you know, an absolutely, you know, horrifying character. And she's, 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 she's not as much of a crook as Purdue is, but she's pretty damn close. Um, Isn't she being investigated for fraud right now because of that? And insider trading, yeah. yeah. No, I think she was cleared for that. No, she, I don't, I, I don't think she's been cleared yet. Um, for for um, for all her charges of uh, of insider trading, um, and, and she it, her, uh, her husband did um, did commit insider trading, essentially. Um, I know the Senate Ethics Committee dropped their probe, but okay, um, the DOJ apparently cleared um, Loeffler. Feinstein and Inhofe and the stock sales stuff per USA Today. Yeah, but in terms of writing negative ads, like you can just yeah. say she was investigated and like that's true. There you go. There's the yeah. ad 
right? You don't really have to, you don't have to provide like court documents showing that she was indicted for anything. Mm -hmm. You can just say she is obviously corrupt and she was put under investigation for that corruption, right? And suddenly there's your name of that. It's way harder to to convict a senator, uh, a sitting senator for these kind of things than, than, yeah. Um, I I mean, I I like, like it's her husband definitely committed, um, committed some form of, uh, I don't know if the SEC would would consider it to be a huge violation, um, but I do not think he followed the law as closely as he should have um, in terms of his conduct at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. Um, Purdue, on the other hand, of course, it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, all you need to do is scroll through a few headlines, smack them up on a YouTube video or, or digital advertisement. Get it to go viral, and quite frankly, that's going to work for uh, low-information voters who they might not be looking at policy work or any of that good stuff, and instead are just, what are the ads? What are their campaign messages? Do I agree with it? Yeah, and I think... No, and I think also there was a lot of really spicy Fox News stuff, like right after that scandal broke, in terms of like Tucker Carlson and um, whatever the blonde woman's, uh, whatever her Ingraham? name is. Ingraham. Yeah. They like went really, they went really negative on Loeffler after that dropped. So I think we're going to see those segments sort of pop up in uh, Purdue, at, or not Purdue, Ossoff ads. Yeah, because the hardcore yeah. Trump people were big for Doug Collins, and I don't remember. Which one of Trump's crazy lawyers it was, but someone said that like Doug Collins is the rightful winner of the Georgia like it might, it might Senate have been race. Oh yeah, it might have been so, yeah. So Sidney Powell, oh, said that, like she's According crazy. Giuliani Powell's not a lawyer for the Trump campaign. That <laughs> <laughs> was the funniest thing I ever saw. I was like, so, uh, yeah, this this crazy lady, she's too much for us. Even we don't even know where she came from, how she got inside the White House, why is she in her official press briefing. No, she's she's uh, she's not related to us, but she was. <laughs> yeah. I know. I think like stuff like that might depress the like Trumper turnout a little bit. I I don't know. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing so far is since November eighteenth, we're up to two hundred seventy-two million being spent in Georgia right now with Leffler, Leffler, whatever it's pronounced, spending forty-one point eight million. So. There's competition going, spending way too much on advertising. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so this is going to be an interesting one to see because Leffler is outspending by like 10 million compared to Warnock. Um, also, he really hasn't had to spend much. I think that's partly due to the fact that half the time he's just posting about the fact Purdue doesn't show up. He's kind of just relying on the incumbency status. So. Yeah, we're going to keep seeing the money go up. It's going to be interesting to watch the trail, see how opposition pars out to support ads, because I have a feeling a lot more people are going to go on the attack side, both for the incumbent and the actual opposition, because we even saw that with the Democrats for Biden versus Trump. Republicans spent significantly more on opposition than the Democrats ever did. So, yeah, it should be an interesting way to see how things go. I do think it's ironic that, like... Luffler and Purdue are talking about how like California liberals are trying to interfere in the Georgia like elections, so like phone banking or coming and volunteering. But like Joni Ernst, like and Tom Cotton are coming to Georgia to campaign for like Luffler and Purdue, and I just think it's a bit ironic. I mean, if the message works and the real information doesn't 
dilute what they're sharing, it works. Although, um, if Tom Cotton, I just, I don't understand who, who sees Tom Cotton at an event and he goes like, I want to vote for this candidate if she's promoting more. Like, specifically, specifically Tom Cotton. Like, I think Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz are probably the two most unappealing people to have ever, you know, been elected to the U.S. Senate. I think we're both, like, too much, like, of nerds to yeah. ever, like, appeal like, to anyone. They're like, populists. Like, yes. yeah. how does that happen? Like, same thing with Holly, I guess. Like, Ted Cruz is a smart guy pretending to be the probably, you know, uh, he's a smart guy pretending to be the biggest idiot ever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, because Ted, I believe, did Ted Cruz go to Harvard Law? I think he, he went, went to Harvard, Harvard Law He got second place in the ADPA debates and then, and then the next year won first, um, like the parliamentary debates. Uh, the, the, the year he lost, he lost to Austin Goolsby, who was one of Obama's uh, economists and Buttigieg's economist. Um, and he, Austin Goolsby is a, is a really funny guy. Um, so cause here's, here's a little fun story. Um, after uh, Goolsby had uh, shredded Cruz in the finals, um, uh, he then challenged uh, Cruz to a game of pickup basketball. And, and he said, well, you know, each time I score a point on you, you give me $20. And Cruz is like, well, I, you're not going sc- to score on me. And Goolsby seemed to annihilate him 20 0. Goolsby is um, he's the guy, if you read, like, if you know IGM polls, if you read IGM polls, yeah. he's the one who leads the. He was, he's the one who leads. He's the one who leaves the meme answers. Um, what does the magic ghouls ball say? <laughs> he, he, he is such an interesting guy. Um, this, he, he's one of the main reasons why I want to go to the University of Chicago. It's just so you can have him as a professor. 